What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the conversation on TYT. I am your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini. I hope you're very good and very safe. I'm excited for these conversations ahead. My first guests have written a book together. Graham Maxton is the author and former Secretary General of the Club of Rome, and Bernice Maxton Lee is a lecturer and former director of the Jane Goodall Institute. And they've written a book called A Chicken Can't Lay a Duck Egg. Welcome Graham and Bernice to the conversation. Um, this book, I I wanna, you're welcome, I wanna get talk about the title. But the book is about how um, despite all the awfulness of COVID-19, um, there might be a silver lining and a lesson when it comes to how we go forward in tackling climate change. Um, explain how this moment can be instructional for us when it comes to reigning in climate change. Okay, so, so the title from the book is actually from the words of Malcolm X, the uh, the black civil rights activist from the 1960s and 70s. I heard what, he, what he meant when he said this is that uh, a chicken can't lay a duck egg. A system is designed to do one thing and it can't do something else. Yeah. And what we mean by it is that the system, the economic system, the political system, the social system that we have today can't solve climate change because it's designed to do something else. It's designed to maximize the profits and short term earnings for a, a small group of people. And so it can't fix climate change, it can't fix our environmental problems. We need a different system. So a chicken can't lay a duck egg. We need a different economic system if we're going to solve our e ecological challenges. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, 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 that's the story behind it. And, and, and we're saying that COVID-19, because it's created so much disruption, so much economic and social disruption. We're saying now is a really good chance. We have the best chance we've had in decades of creating that sort of big change that we need. Yeah, Bernice, how how do you go about um, you know explaining the link between you know some of the lessons we're learning now and the lessons that we could be learning and applying to climate change? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, for a long time, the things that we were saying needed to happen to stop climate change, um, people said were, you know, nice but impossible, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then along came COVID-19, and a lot of the things that we've been saying that needed to happen, like shutting down a lot of production and uh, sending people home uh, and paying them not to work and uh, stopping people from flying, lo and behold, that started happening. And mm -hmm. so it became clear that, huh, actually these things are possible. So we're saying that actually we've made a really great head start. So let's use that momentum and, and uh, do more. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading a recent study that said that there's like been a 7% drop in global emissions um, and that Yet, if we were to be on track with, you know, the Paris Climate Accord, which is, of course, incredibly a low of a bar, but still we have to get there, that we'd have to keep on reducing our emissions by seven percent every single year for the next decade. And as someone who's, you know, itching to go outside and meet with people and see people and drive places, you know. It's worrisome because I'm like, wait a minute, what does this mean? Are we all gonna have to be inside for the rest of our lives? What What is your response and what do you lay out in the book in terms of whether we're gonna have to just be indoors as a way to stop climate change? I'm sure that's not what you're arguing, but yeah. <laughs> it's not. No. I mean, this, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, emissions went down 7% last year and they need to go down 7% every year now. And that's a big, a big ask. 
but let's not forget also that the concentration is still going up. I mean, we're still releasing far too many greenhouse gases. And so the situation, the climate change situation is getting worse. Yeah. It's just that it's getting less, you know, slower. It's getting worse more slowly than it was before. Right. What we're saying is we need to go back to something more like life was in the 1970s. We need to go back to a simpler life where we're not consuming so much. We're not using so much energy. We're not going, you know, off to the Seychelles for our holidays or Mexico or wherever we're going. We're right. traveling less and living more simply. But, you know, with different values, we, we we think about the world slightly differently and we can enjoy it in different ways. Yeah, if I can just jump in that, you know, it's, it's also not just about the decisions that we make as consumers. It's not about us as individuals like staying in our homes. It's actually about uh, producers not producing so much stuff. So this this also needs to be much, much bigger than us as individuals, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of the um, the framework that I think the UN has uh, has taken or hasn't really taken up, which is we need to pay uh, countries in the global south to not emit, to not tear down the rainforest. That there is, should be an incentive, like you're saying, uh, stay home. Here is money to stay home, which you know, here in the U.S., you know, our government is not even doing a great job of of helping us stay home um, to prevent the spread of this virus. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about that systemic change versus reform. Uh, I think that I'm in total agreement with you um, that especially under capitalism, it's like you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, as they say. It is completely antithetical um, to keep growing GDPs and try and live on this planet that gets hotter and hotter and hotter. There are steps, right? And and how I think the Green New Deal is a great example of that. But how would you see um, governments being able to seize on this moment to push forward things like a Green New Deal, things like um, you know moving along to renewables, um, massive investment in in that kind of green technology? What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so far governments have failed us completely here. I mean. We've been talking about climate change for for you know 30, 40 years now, and and we've done nothing really. I mean, the situation is getting worse all the time. And what we're saying in the book is that we actually need to reclaim democracy. That the democracy has been hijacked by a bunch of a bunch of people who are looking after themselves and a bunch of people who are funded by corporates, uh, and they're not doing what's necessary. And we need we need to put people elect people who are actually going to take the steps that are needed to radically downsize our economies and and shift the way we live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would also add to that that we need to stop thinking about environmental issues and climate change as uh, you know, in silos, we need to stop that being pushed into the green discussion. And we need to make sure that that goes across all issues. So across social, across infrastructure, across health, um, because we're seeing a lot of confusion, um, and I use that term. Yeah, with, I'm, I'm trying to be kind here. Um, we see a lot of confusion in policy coming out. Like an example is the UK, which is hosting uh, COP26 this year, uh, the big climate change meeting. Yes. And yet at the same time, they have plans for a building a third runway at Heathrow, uh, the country's biggest airport. And they have plans to build a new deep coal mine. So there's clearly a disconnect in that logic. Somebody's making some decisions uh, in one, on one side of the room um, that are not translating across to that discussion on the other side. Absolutely, yeah, I think that, 
Yes, once again, I mean, the Greta Thunberg is just resounding in my head that we need a radical shift. And here you, you've seen it in COVID. And I mean, one of, one of the things that I think we're gonna have to talk about is how we actually confront um, these major industries like the airline industry, um, like uh, the automobile industry that are all dependent on fossil fuels, which as we all know, I feel like there was a sort of an idea that was like, oh, well, well oil is gonna just get too expensive because the scarcity <laughs> is gonna mean that it's too expensive. Well, it's cheaper than ever. You know, so this is not the market is not helping us in this moment right now. Um, but anyway, what are your thoughts on that? Is it is it elect the politicians that are willing to stand up to those in, industries, or um, will they come around because green technology? Is profitable at some point. I don't. Know, what are your What are your thoughts on that, uh, Graham? Yeah, right. So I think we need to we need to interrupt the life cycle of this thought process. That uh, you know, just like some messiah, some some hero is going to come along and save us all. That the market is going to come along and save us all. It's not. I'm really sorry to be the bearer of that news, but it's really not. Uh, so we have to have a major mind shift. Yeah, absolutely. The market can't solve this, and nor can technology. I mean, the, the problem that we've got here is our mentality. We keep thinking we need growth. We keep thinking we need to travel and live the way we do, and we don't. We need to change the way we live, and then we can solve this problem. It's not a technological problem. It's a it's a political social problem, and that's what we have to address. Just really quickly, personally, um, what how are you coming away from this pandemic um, in terms of, and I know it's more than our own lifestyles, but how how do we need to reframe how we think about even, yeah, the ways that we travel, the ways that we consume? Um, yeah, I mean, the pandemic offers us a chance to re reset the, the, the way we live. I mean, we're living in a very strange situation here. We're in Taiwan where there is no coronavirus and we have no lockdown. And so our life is still as normal, but we're looking like almost from another universe. Oh and we God. can see terrible suffering in, in, in the US and Europe. But we also want to waken people up so that they understand that this is an opportunity. It may be terrible right now, but we have the chance to change the way we think and change the way we behave. Yeah, I would add to that that, uh, you know, looking from the outside in almost at the way that different governments around the world are responding to this, we would really like to awaken the empathy mm. in leadership. You know, start thinking not about the economy, but about the people, about the lives. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. We're in that moment of yeah. in the US just electing a president who finally is acknowledging the massive casualties under COVID-19 and of course, the massive casualties under climate change. Um, hopefully he'll acknowledge that and do something about it. Uh, Bernice Maxton Lee and Graham Maxton, uh, they've just authored a book, The Chicken, A Chicken Can't Lay a Duck Egg, um, all about how this moment can teach us the way forward to solving and stopping climate change once and for all. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Thank you both very much. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. My next guest is the co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. And for four years, he worked as a director of strategic campaigns and civic communications director for moveon.org. Uh, please welcome Adam Green. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Uh, I know you, along with a lot of others, but you had a huge role in the two Senate race wins in this runoff in January. Uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff winning um, by a sliver, but winning. And thanks to the work of grassroots organizing. Um, tell me about the role of Progressive Change Campaign Committee and what you all did there. 
Sure, I'll tell you what we did and why we did it. Um, you know, PCCC members across the country were proud to chip in over $700,000 in grassroots donations, both to John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock, but also to over a dozen groups on the ground who were doing the hard work of organizing in the black community, the AAPI community, Latinx community, the Native American community, and the youth community. Um, our basic theory of the case was there has been such strong infrastructure built there, in large part thanks to Stacey Abrams and her allies, mm -hmm. that let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's just give them the support they need to do what they've been planning for years. <laughs> and thank goodness they did it. The reason that we got so involved is that we knew that the ceiling of possibility would be higher on every progressive issue that we care about if we won both of those Senate races. Canceling student debt, anything in the healthcare space, anything in the corporate accountability space, climate. Um, we were really looking at a situation where we might have only been dependent on Joe Biden using executive power. And thank goodness we won both, now we actually have many legislative plays that we can run. Absolutely, and what do you think, what was different about this campaign? I mean, do you and do you think that the DCCC, right, as opposed to your PCCC is gonna look at the work that you did and say, hmm, maybe we should just be giving to grassroots black and brown led organizers? I, I hope the establishment understands that Stacey Abrams and the groups on the ground really just proved the progressive theory of the case on how to win tough elections, which is deep base engagement. And then inspiring that base with big bold ideas like say $2,000 checks, which were the centerpiece of the closing argument by Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff. Yeah. Um, you know, I was really dismayed after the November 3rd election when Abigail Spanberger, a conservative Democrat and others really put out this red herring argument that oh, we didn't do as well as we wanted because of progressives and you know various things like abolish, uh, you know defund the police and socialism. You know what? All of those attacks attacks were used against John Ossoff and Reverend yes. Warnock. That's a constant. We will always get attacked. What was different was instead of some candidates running scared, running for Senate, these folks really just ran on their values. And yeah. thank goodness they did because again, we won by 10,000, 20,000 votes. And that wouldn't have happened if we weren't inspiring people with big bold ideas. So I think this really proved that the progressive way to win is deep based engagement and big bold ideas. That's how we should do it in 2022 and 2024 as well. Absolutely. What What do you mean when you say deep base engagement? I just want to unpack that. Like what? Yeah. What does that look like? Well, again, we, you know, the the main play in Georgia was not oh let's convert Trump voters and hope that they somehow have a change of heart. That's you know why we. We're fundraising for groups that were organizing in the black, Latinx, uh, youth, Asian American, and the Native American space. Let's get our own people out to vote. And you know, my co-founder Stephanie Taylor has a great phrase where she says, we shouldn't be dragging people to the polls, we should be inspiring people to the polls. And I think that that's where the big ideas comes in, right? You can have a minimalist agenda that inspires no one. You can capitulate to Republicans and activate their base and demobilize our base, or we could do what we just did which is actually engage people authentically and do it around big ideas. And that's why you know, we're very hopeful that um, other Democrats in the Senate will take a look at these two Democrats who just went in Georgia and say, huh, maybe we should pass $2,000 checks as we consider COVID relief. Right, yeah. let's go.
Absolutely. I mean, the other side goes big all the time, right? Oh. Let's build a wall, right? I mean, for the wrong reasons. And then I think there's this sort of like bad faith argument where it's like, well, then we can't go big because that means we're fascists. It's like, no. No, 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 <laughs> like, you know, like, ooh, that it, you know, it's it's bad to sort of counter like fight fire with fire, and we're like, no, we actually should do that. Um, but I want to talk to you about what you know. Speaking of two thousand dollar checks, Biden yeah. did roll out this one point nine trillion dollar coronavirus bill, which included a sixteen hundred or fourteen hundred dollar checks, right, to equal two thousand dollar checks to the dismay of some people that you know they weren't outright two thousand dollar checks. What are your thoughts on that? And then what are your thoughts on on Biden's overall um, bill here and what it says about his administration? Yeah, you know we're we're a group that is fully willing to criticize Democrats and hold Democrats accountable. It's also important to give credit where credit is due. And I thought Joe Biden coming out with a $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan just weeks after Congress passed a $900 billion plan really showed that he's leaning into doing what is just needed in this moment. Yeah. Um, I thought it was also good a couple of days ago when Jen Psaki, the new press secretary, was asked by some reporter a very right wing framed question about, oh, you know, Republicans don't like this. Don't you think you have the dollar amount too high? And she was like, you know, we didn't start with the dollar amount. We started with what we needed to do to help people. And we landed at $1.9 trillion. And my question to any critics would be, what do you wanna cut? You wanna cut vaccines? You wanna cut unemployment insurance? You wanna cut aid to the states? Let, let us know, what do you wanna cut? Right? I think that's a really great way of governing on our values, putting the actual um, methods that we will help people out there and daring the other side to oppose us. And the other yeah. thing I'm noticing, by the way, is I think we're gonna face um, a, a crossroads about the definition of bipartisanship, right? Does bipartisanship mean we need Mitch McConnell to agree with us, if so, we'll bring that 1.9 trillion down to 100 billion, right? But if bipartisanship means A, that we're getting Republican governors on our side, all of whom want massive coronavirus relief. If it means B, that we want Republican voters and Democratic voters, all of who want vaccines and unemployment insurance and jobs and aid for the states. Well, that's a different definition. And I hope the Democrats continue to be bold and have Main Street bipartisanship, not DC bipartisanship. For sure, and I also think the media has a role to play because I've been noticing in the last few days they've been framing um, this discussion of the coronavirus bill as in opposition to Biden's call for unity. Like, well, he says he wants unity, but then he wants all this money for you know working people, and it's like, what are you? How are you framing this discussion right now? Um, but again, we have to not fall into that trap. Yeah, and just one thing on that, you know, we talk to reporters a fair amount, and I find that when we identify for them the two definitions of bipartisanship. It's a light bulb moment. They're like, oh, right. But they just think, oh, bipartisanship means Mitch McConnell goes along. That's their right. default. They're right. not thinking there's two choices, I'm picking one. So I think there is a role. It's great that we have alternative media out there, big fan of the Young Turks. Um, and we just gotta keep educating the public and the media. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, it's the framing. So tell me about, you know, there's been a lot of hand wringing and sort of scrutiny around Biden's administration picks and, you know, every single person is scrutinized and it seems like they weren't the worst when it looking from a progressive lens, but they weren't necessarily the best. We know there's a lot of diversity, which is always really important. But what are your thoughts on his administration and sort of the signals that he's giving to the progressive movement, given that let's say Bernie and Warren are not you know, in his cabinet. Yeah, I mean, I think two things can be true at the same time. One, you know, his cabinet and his administration is not gonna be looking like a Warren or Bernie administration would have. 
But also the Overton window has massively shifted. And this is leaps and bounds above where Obama was in 2009. Mm. The difference between Rahm Emanuel and even Ron Klain as chief of staff is night and day. Rahm Emanuel could not wait to spit in the face of progressives, exclude us from the room. Ron Klain is the kind of person who wants progressives at the table in his ideal world. I do think we actually won a lot of progressive victories. I would say Warren Wing victories. You know, Janet Yellen or Treasury Secretary is someone who brought down the hammer on Wells Fargo when she was Fed Chair. That's yeah. someone with a proven track record of challenging Wall Street, a far cry from Robin, Robert Rubin and other corporate Democrats who have been appointed in the past. Just in the last couple of weeks, we had Rohit Chopra, um, one of the big antitrust people on the FTC who's been challenging Facebook and Google, uh, appointed to run the CFPB. We've had several other former Warren staffers uh, trained and versed in holding corporations accountable, appointed to be Deputy Treasury Secretary um, or Chief of Staff, rather, um, appointed to be right in the center of staffing the government for environmental positions. Another one in the foreign policy space. And a mm-hmm. guy named Barat is now the um, deputy of the National Economic Council. Uh, we're seeing a lot of just great people you know, in the administration, in addition to some of the more establishment people. So yeah. I, if the goal is to have a seat at the table, I think we have many seats at the table. And of course, if we ever have a movement president, we'll have even more seats at the table. Uh, here's hoping this feels though it's like a, a, an Obama administration. I think there was a lot of like, oh, but there's a lot of Obama appointees. But it feels like an unleashed Obama administration. Like what Obama administration 2.0, what he was always supposed to be or could have been. Do you think that's a signal? That, I mean, I don't know what you're hearing, but do you think there's been a signal from the from Biden himself to his staff and his cabinet that like? Like we're for real this time. Like you can, we can actually move an agenda of justice on multiple fronts. I don't know your thoughts. I think yes and no to some of the stuff you mentioned. I wouldn't overstate <laughs> how much <laughs> the Biden people have learned the lessons of Obama, but I think they have learned some. Okay. I remember when outgoing communications director for Obama, Dan Pfeiffer, did an exit interview and he said, "One lesson I learned is that we never went bold and regretted it," which is a great lesson to remember. But I also do truly believe that Joe Biden is trying to rise to this moment on the coronavirus front. And if that means this current $1.9 trillion package, he's gonna have another $2 trillion clean energy jobs package as part of his Build Back Better plan. You know, honestly, we'll take that. Trillions and trillions of dollars of government helping people's lives. Even if, even if they've learned, you know, six out of 10 lessons, um, we'll take it. And it, it feels like we're going in the right direction right now. So I feel pretty good about it. Awesome, Adam, thanks for explaining all this to us. I hope you will come back. Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, PCCC. That's the C that we like here on the Young Turks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, appreciate it.